When I moved to St Andrews four years ago and they said, you have to give student handouts for lectures, I nearly died. I hate giving out handouts. And in Edinburgh, I only ever lectured in a lecture theatre if there was blackboard and chalk. So I, I was chased in Edinburgh to give a handouts as well. And I said, well, if you can digitise chalk, let me know. And they never did. Anyway, this evening we're supposed to be having something that isn't a sermon and isn't just a long talk. It's going to be a very long talk. But what I'm trying to do this evening is really to draw attention to a subject that we all know about, we've all thought about. And actually, because of that, it becomes very difficult to stand up and say anything remotely new or challenging or perhaps you'll find even interesting. So what I want to do is I've got 12 slides, and basically the slides contain six questions. This is the first slide, so when I move on from this, there's only 11 more to go. Okay. After that, I hope there will be some time uh, for questions or for a response. What I don't want to do, and I think it's important, I haven't got some magic formula that makes us better Christians. I haven't got some great tips that change how you live your life or witness. But what I want to do really with these six questions is perhaps one or two or more of them, just to leave them with you and to think to yourself, hmm, is there anything I can do with that question that will change how I think about my Christian service? So here's the first question. I don't know, I don't watch, Gareth Malone, isn't that his name? I don't, I don't watch him, but it's amazing, isn't it? He gets this group of people together. They may or may not be singers. He gets them together. They, they go into a huddle. They practice. They rehearse. They do this time after time after time, and the cameras are there to capture it. And then the moment comes when they perform in public, and it's a great occasion. It's a fantastic celebration all that work, all that time together, all that, all that fellowship together comes to its reality, comes to its conclusion when they stand up in public and give the performance. Which is why I'm asking the first question is if you are a practicing Christian. Somebody once said to me, you know, you've been a practicing Christian for so long, you really think you ought to be better at doing it. And there is that element when we're thinking of being salt and light that we spend an awful lot of time preparing for it, practicing for it, enjoying the fellowship of coming together and the rehearsals and the training and and the getting together. But actually what we've got to do is we've got to go out and do it. So it's a play in the world of practice, but it's perhaps worth asking the question, are we practicing Christians in the sense of going out and doing something Or are we practicing Christians in the sense of always meeting together to prepare ourselves for it? So that's the first question. Are we a practicing Christian? We've had a passage read to us, James read to us, and we've got to think, well, what was life like in first century Palestine? We will refer to a number of bits of scripture. Well, what we know is that life was tough, We knew that there was a fractured community. They were under occupation. Yes, there were Jews, but they were fundamentalist through to rather materialist. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the here and now versus the here and after. We had globalization. We had all sorts of foreigners coming in. It was an amazing and settled time. Many lived a subsistence existence. They weren't wealthy. They lived in caves, they maybe lived in shelters, and people really struggled to make ends meet. They really struggled. For many, there was huge sectarianism, there was discrimination, there were all sorts of problems. And into that time, what happened? Into that time, Jesus spoke these words. You think of our situation today. You think many parts of the world under the domination of Wahhabism, that that brutal, harsh form of Islam. You think of areas in the world where wealth 
and corruption dominate everything else. You think of the fashion or the anti-fashion for fake news and the threat some would see even to democracy itself. Jesus said the words we've heard from Matthew 5 in difficult times. We live in difficult times and these words are relevant for us too. So the second question is, well, what does it look like getting it right? Because what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, he stood for something that was quite different, for something that was quite unique, but absolutely right for the time. And we're not going to go through the passage tonight, but to leave you the question, what does, what does getting it right look like? Well, I would suggest from Matthew 5 a number of points. Firstly, and I think hugely important, and we'll come back to this later, aiming for something higher. Yes, it was looking out. Yes, it was looking around. Yes, it was dealing with people where they were when Jesus said, if you're hungry, actually, they knew what hunger felt like, and he took it beyond that. So the first thing is Jesus said, we're aiming for something higher. A second theme emerges, and that's meekness and peacemaking as hallmarks of our character. And those are features that will inevitably interact with us and determine how we interact with other people, whether or not we agree with them. The third feature is that our character should be righteous and pure. And above all else, that means it must be consistent. We should be looking for the plank in our own eyes before picking fault in the speck in other people's eyes. Rather than imposing our will in others or assuming they should agree with us, we should instead be pointing to something distinctive and different and challenging, offering an alternative, but being demonstrably different. Why? Because we're aiming for something higher. Fourthly then, mercy. This is such an important criterion. Do we judge a behavior or a situation or a, a trait as wrong? Or do we judge a person? Mercy. And then fifthly, and hugely important, is cost. This doesn't come easily and it doesn't come cheaply. It doesn't come free. There's a cost to it. So the question, the second question is, what does looking at, what does getting it right look like? And we have to have a different viewpoint. That's the point of Matthew 5. Jesus said, he's the light of the world. Why, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then the verses where James had stopped, but going on from that, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built in hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The third question is, is there a Christian sense of entitlement? And I think this is quite an interesting, but it's quite an important question, actually, as we think about what it is to be salt and light. We've got to act. We can't just practice. We've actually got to know that we're aiming for something higher. A recent report by the Equality and Human Rights Commission in the UK on religion noted in passing that Christians, this I'm quoting, Christians sometimes feel that legislation systematically undermines them. Now, if you know anything about equalities, that might be something that rings bells. The Equality and Human Rights Commission commented in the report that Christians sometimes feel that legislation systematically undermines them. It's simply there as a point to note. It's not as a criticism. It's just a statement. But it does echo many situations where Christians feel that a long-standing, biblically-based approach to morality, life, and society has been challenged. So we can take that as a negative, but I'd like to turn it around and say, well, actually, sometimes do Christians have a sense of entitlement, a belief that our minority view should be 
imposed upon others or in society as a whole. So, for example, in parts of the UK, in England, there's still an established church. The church and the state, the head of state is the head of the church. There's that sense of being part of the establishment. There's this sense, and people talk about it, you know, we used to be a Christian country. We're now post-Christian. Well, when were we a Christian country? Would that be in Victorian era, when children went down mines, or when we were imposing imperialism on the world, or brutally suppressing rebellion and keeping the working classes down? At what point were we a Christian culture? Yes, we had an established religion, we had an established dogma, but really, were we ever Christian? We look at Christians in society historically. You look at the end of slavery, and it was a Christian, yes. You look at the hospice movement more recently, yes. You look at hospitals way back, yes. People who had belief and faith and trust, those were people who made a difference. But we remember them because they stand out, not because they were the majority view. They were a minority voice fighting for justice, fighting for equality, fighting for fairness. So we have to ask ourselves, is there a sense of Christian entitlement? And as I hope we see later, this is important. Even 1942, C.S. Lewis was writing, uh, well, he was writing a lot of things, not just in 1942, I guess, but he was writing about divorce. And he said, you know, why is the church getting so twisted up about divorce? If the world wants to regard divorce as something that can happen, so be it. In the church, we stand for something different. In other words, he said, we have no entitlement to tell society what it should do, but we have an absolute responsibility within the church to do what God commands us to do. And we can debate how exactly that works out in practice, but I think it's important to ask ourselves, do we have an entitlement? Because if we do, When we do things, when we seek to be salt and light, we expect a result, or we expect to be accepted, or we expect people to understand why we've done it, and what we're doing, and what we're hoping to achieve. The point is, that frequently is not the case. People did not understand Jesus. People did not understand his teaching on the Beatitudes. Why? because there was no sense of entitlement and they came from a completely different place and a completely different understanding. So there's no doubt that many Christians are unhappy with our society and our wider society. There's no doubt that there is a place for Christians to make a difference, to be salt, to be light. But actually, if we assume or think, one, that we're understood, or two, that we have a right, we have an entitlement, I suspect we're going to end up being very disappointed. And that takes us to this idea, and I don't want to dwell on this particularly, but just to think about secularism. We often say we live in a secular society. But actually, when we say that word secular, we mean different things. If I go back to the Middle Ages... If I couldn't be bothered being holy and praying, I would give my alms so that a monk or a priest could be employed, and he would be the holy man. He'd be in spiritual employment. I would be in secular employment. We do the same today. We pay Andrew as a pastor, and he does all the praying, all the visiting, all the Christian stuff for us while we get on with our lives. And you think, well, that's not quite the way it works. I don't think. But isn't there an element in that? that we think of, well, there's secular employment, and then there's, oh, there's other employment. There's calling, there's vacation. And I think it's a trap we've got ourselves into because we've allowed the separation over hundreds of years, secular and spiritual. And it's not real because each of us is where God placed us to be to make a difference. So that definition of secular, which we immediately identify with, is unhelpful. The second which typified by John F. Kennedy, I believe in America, where the separation in the church and state is absolute and where the $1 bill says, in God we trust. If that's not a contradiction, what is? But you have that separation of secular, meaning a religious. So you have a secular, a public school, rather than a church school. That's secular. 
you have a secular job, not a spiritual job. And of course, as part of that, increasingly, we have a decreased participation in organized religion. So that's a secular that exists, that has existed for many, many years, that varies from country to country in how much it's applied. But then there's a third way of thinking about secular, which is perhaps more relevant now, which is it's an alternative to religion. It's not a religious. It's not there's a religious bit and a non-religious. It's an assumption that actually there are no assumptions. In other words, there is no assumption that religious is the norm. There's no assumption that people will believe. There's no assumption that faith provokes anything. In other words, we have secular, challenging belief and offering alternatives, which might be a belief in a political system or a belief in nothing or whatever. That, I think, is a challenge. So three ways, if you will, of thinking about secular, all of which apply. And if we seek to be salt and light and make a difference... Actually, why we don't have to know this, it's useful to think, how will what we do be seen to be different? Because people are increasingly fitting into that bottom category of not just being a-religious, but thinking, well, that's fine. If you want to be religious, that's great, up to you. Tolerance is wonderful. You want to be religious, that's fine. Just keep it to yourself. We believe in this or we don't believe in anything. So that's an important part If we then go and look at how to believe, this is interesting because what I've said implies that over time people have actually stopped believing. Now, people haven't always believed in the gospel, but they always knew that people did believe in the gospel. That's changed where it's now unusual and belief is not expected. So it was normal to believe. There's a headline from a paper in Louisiana from a couple of years ago. There was one earlier this year from Texas. High school student stands up against prayer at public school and is ostracized, demeaned, and threatened. It is still abnormal to say you're an atheist in parts of the United States. That is not at all abnormal where we are because belief has moved on from being the norm, even if you personally don't believe, you assume other people do, to assuming that nobody would believe, why on earth would you? So again, if we're going to make a difference by what we do, we have to realize that people's assumptions are different. And that's changed through history. So you've got Copernicus who wondered about the earth going around the sun. That's the revolution bit. That's meant to be a clever play in words. Doesn't work. But the church saying, absolutely not. Everything revolves around the earth. We are the most important. We are entitled Then you have the whole debate about the Enlightenment and the solution and rationality and the whole event of scientific evolutionism as the belief system that says we don't need anything irrational and dependent on faith. And then you've got the whole of cosmology and the dissolution ultimately of the universe saying we've got it all sorted. And actually you can go into all of that as a believing Christian and it's fine. The problem is society is saying, basically, our default starting point is we don't believe. So we somehow into this have to remember those verses. We actually have to show God's glory. So there's a huge challenge. So belief is not assumed. People get very taxed about Richard Dawkins. He's a very good writer. He's a complete self-publicist. But actually, most people aren't atheists. And if we focus our attacks on atheism, we're kind of missing the point. Most people are agnostic. They actually don't know. And I think that's just as true within the church, to be honest, as outside. We do things because they're right. We do things because they're moral. We do things because they matter. I've just realized there's no clock. I'm going to... Because that's a dangerous thing. There used to be a clock. Okay, we're fine. People, we do things for the right reason. Now we do it and we say, well, it's right. It's right to do. So agnosticism is actually a much bigger issue for us than atheism. Most people aren't atheist. Most people say, I don't know. And even when Dawkins had his his campaign in the buses, they had at the end of the day, because they didn't want to break advertising standards, God probably doesn't exist. Well, okay, probably doesn't. But even there, there's that chink of possibility Maybe we don't know. 
So that's quite an important issue because we often think we're head-to-head Christianity against something else. And actually, that's not the way it is. So when we seek to be salt and light and make a difference, actually, what are we trying to make a difference to? The next sentence probably doesn't make any sense. It's kind of following on that. When we talk about, say, sexuality, and the Christian church in the West tears itself apart over issues of sexuality, it looks like it is the most important thing in our agenda. And part of the problem is that part of the church says, you know what, we should be tolerant and we should accept. And another part of the church says, not on your life. And actually, you think within that spectrum, what is really going on? But part of the danger is that we sometimes think within a closed system. We think God is love. God loves everybody. Therefore, if you feel right doing it, who am I to say it's wrong? And that is the basis of closeness. We start from a premise that says, actually, it's all about feeling comfortable. It's all about feeling right. If we're going to make a difference, we're going to challenge. And if you read Matthew 5 again, it doesn't say, let's just go along with the status quo. It says, doesn't let us be appropriate for the time. It says, you're going to be completely against, out of line with what people currently think. And of course, and we'll come back to this, First Peter, have an answer for that hope that is within. That is a huge part because if we're going to show God's glory, we need to do something about it. So the fourth question is, how is the church? Is the church how it is supposed to be? Well, that means we've got to define what the church is. And I think the best way to look on that, if Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light. And then he says, but you're the light of the world. We are individually and corporately the window of the world to see what the gospel is all about. That's why being salt and light, making a difference, is actually representing Jesus to the world. So our church, if it's doing the right thing, is a window or a door for people to see the gospel message of salvation. And if we're getting it right, excellent. If we're not, what are we doing? We are salt and light. Let your works be seen so that people will glorify God. We're actually on display. Our works aren't done in secret. Our deeds aren't hidden away. They're done in public so that people will see them and through that glorify God. If those works if those actions are truly salt and light. So yeah, we all know about the plank and the speck, but let me spend just a little bit on 1 Corinthians 5. It's not necessarily where you'd expect me to go because it starts by talking about incest, which you may not feel is entirely relevant to a thing in salt and light, but let me just read some verses from 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of the fellowship the man who has been doing this? And Paul goes on, he's not a happy man. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore... Let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. First century Corinth was an interesting place. It really was the centre of world globalisation. The cult of Aphrodite from 100 years past, mystical religions from the East, the basis of wisdom and the worship of Isis from Egypt. This was a place where rationality and new age came head to head. And the church had made a complete mess up of being different, of being salt and light. Why? There were Jews, there were Gentiles, 
There were Greeks, Romans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, you name it. This was a hive, an absolute center of tolerance and acceptance. And the church had gone so out of their way to be accepting and tolerant that they'd even accepted somebody who slept with his father's wife. And Paul says, you're mad. That's not tolerance. That's just stupid. Even the pagans get that. But the point is, he's not railing against sexuality because he's got a thing about it. Because he says, this is such an obvious example. Any moron could see this is wrong. But don't forget the swindlers and the idolaters and the cheats and the drunkards and all the others who are on the make. He's saying, here's the example. But as a church, tolerance only goes so far. And if you're going to make a difference, if your church is going to be the window through which people see the gospel, you've got to get it right. It's interesting. We're not going to stay here an awful long time. The church had to be tolerant. It was a huge mix of cultures and background and belief. Paul doesn't criticize the woman. He criticizes the man. Presumably the woman, his father's wife, not his mother presumably, but even if it was, is not in the church. She's not the one who's the victim of Paul's ire. It's the person in the church. Why? Because the church must have a higher standard. Why? Because the church is the window through which the world sees the gospel. Paul even says we have to be in the world. We're not spending our whole time pointing the finger We're actually in the world, we're making a difference, but our intolerance of sin, our intolerance of wrongdoing is entirely focused on getting the church right. And how often as an evangelical do we point at the world and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. That is not to say we don't speak out, but what it does say is make sure that the church reflects what God wants it to be. Salt and light making a difference will make a difference when we have our own house in order. When people looking through that window see a higher standard and a higher purpose. So that's the fourth question. Is the church what it's supposed to be? If we then move on from that, and this is a sort of question, action and faith, secular or spiritual good works. Sometimes people say, well, I'm all for salt and light, but anything I do has to be Christian. It has to be a Christian focus. Somehow when I do it, I have to be conveying the gospel message. And I don't see that in scripture. And nor do I see that necessarily being the most effective witness. We have a higher call. That's our motivation. Jesus fed 5,000 people. He didn't counsel them individually, but he fed them. He met their need. He healed people that he may never have seen again. He healed 10 lepers and only one returned. We have this thing sometimes in the church thinking it's only effective if we spend our time doing spiritual things. And our salt and light is then more about what we believe and more about what we say we believe and more about judging what is right and what is wrong than actually meeting people's needs. And it's those deeds that are seen that glorify our Father. So we have a higher call. We have to be available. There's a focus. There's a book, How Not to Be Secular, which is a book about a book, about a lot of books, by Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher. But this slightly confusing diagram over here. You don't need to worry about. There are three points to this. Well, there's more than three, but three is about as much as I could get out of it. There are people who say there's a higher purpose. That's all that means. That should be us. Christians should say there's a higher purpose. Whatever I'm doing, and that doesn't mean it matter whether it's spiritual or secular, if we're going to use that word, whether it's for a Christian purpose or outreach or just to help people, it's because there's a higher purpose. Then you've got my favorite person, Nietzsche, and you've got the neo-Nietzschean anti-humanist who say might is right. And of course, that is a philosophy that's gaining traction. Might is right. And sometimes we think this is the, the divide. There's Christians with a higher purpose doing what they're doing for that reason. Or you've got people saying might is right, whatever, strength wins. Actually, 
The important bit here is there are people who do not accept a higher purpose, who are humanist, and who say, you know what? The modern moral order is based on respect, tolerance, and all the rest of it. And that can present problems with Christians because it is clearly more than might than right. It is clearly giving. It is clearly altruistic. And yet, there isn't an acceptance and awareness that what is done is done to glorify God. And I think increasingly Christians are tending to fall into this corner. We're not sure about doctrine. We're not quite agnostic, but we know it's right to do things. It's right to be tolerant. It's right to be accepting. And gradually, this being good takes over the focus on a higher purpose. And that's why you can't separate good teaching and good doctrine from what we do. Because if we're salt and light making a difference, we have to be doing it for the right reason. Somebody else might have fed 5,000 people because they got a delivery from Tesco. That would have been great, but it wouldn't have shown a higher purpose, a higher standard. That's the key. So, secular or spiritual good works, I think when we're talking about salt and light, there is no distinction. If we're doing it, For the higher purpose, we are doing it so that the works might be seen, so that God might be glorified. Médecins Sans Frontières is an amazing organisation, started by seven people, I think four doctors, three journalists, 1971, following the Biafran War in West Africa. And these doctors and journalists said, this is just wrong. The Red Cross isn't saying anything, because their policy is you just get in and make a difference. We must speak out. There are now 46,000 people employed by Médecins Sans Frontières in every part of the world, in every trouble zone. You hear about them in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq. Huge risk, huge personal sacrifice, huge good. You want to see salt and light? You look at Médecins Sans Frontières. What is it based on? It's based on good humanist principles. And people have been willing to lay down their lives. And what are their values? independence, they go where they're needed, they speak out, témoignage, so they're bearing witness, they're a network. And how isn't that like the church? Because in many ways it is. The difference is that in 46 years they've gone from seven people to 46,000 making a difference across the world and their good works are seen, they won the Nobel Prize for peace, that's amazing. And yet no higher purpose. So there's a challenge for us to understand that what we do is good, but it's not uniquely good. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. It means we do it in as much as we can by the power of God. Why? So that our works are seen and make a difference. Not have to be big programs like Médecins Sans Frontières. It could be small. It can be just visiting somebody. It can be that kind word. But the challenge is there to focus on the higher standard. If we just do good because we're nice, that's fine. That's not being salt and light in the way that Jesus meant. He said, you've got to go in. You shine in the dark places. You're salt. You preserve against the rot. You speak out. You bear witness. You stand up for the oppressed. That's the challenge we have as a church. And then the final question is salt and light, can we make a difference? And I think that, oops, I think the answer is yes, we can. Think of the church as the window. When they see the works, they glorify our Father. We do those works, why? Because we have a higher standard. It's not just to be good, it's not just to be humanitarian, it's because of something else. Three pointers, that one, Let people see your works so that they may glorify your Father. Remember this passage? Jesus says, I welcome you. And you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me. You visited me in prison. And the disciples said, what? And Jesus says, any time you did that, you were doing it for me. And it's something I think we've lost. Actually helping somebody. You pass somebody in the street 
and they're in need. I'm not saying that giving money is the answer necessarily, but it isn't something we can just walk past. Presiding visiting, which we're going to hear about later uh, this session. Actually, there's a huge challenge because Jesus says, inasmuch as you clothe that person, there's no Christian message, there was no preaching, there was no official program. You didn't even see Jesus in the situation. Inasmuch as you did that, you did it to me. Somebody was thirsty, you gave them water. Inasmuch as you did that, you did it for me. A higher standard, a higher calling, and a higher purpose. The huge challenge, nothing is separated into secular or spiritual. If we are motivated by that higher standard, everything we do out of love for God in the name of Jesus is that higher purpose, that higher standard, is salt and light and does make a difference. Not a difference that we will see, not a difference that we may notice, but it does make a difference because Jesus says, you visit somebody in prison, you visit at me. If you want to give back to Jesus, visit him in prison, clothe him, give sacrificially if somebody's hungry. Look at the refugee crisis and don't just wring your hands and say, what can I do? What can I do? Because it's Jesus who is that refugee. What can I do? And then I think crucially, 1 Peter 3, have an answer for that hope that is within you. We're not always going to have the chance to speak, but if we do things motivated by that higher purpose, doing it for Jesus, because of Jesus, because of his love, we may have the opportunity to speak. We may be questioned. We may be challenged because we may speak up for those who are downtrodden, those who are oppressed. We may speak up and people say, why? We have to have an answer for the hope that is within. And that's not just true in issues of poverty, It's also true in this whole area of sexuality. What is the hope? What answer do we have if we take a view that is very, if you like, traditional, hard line, could I say it, in the world's eyes, on issues of sexuality, or indeed one that is very accommodating? What is the answer for the hope that is within that allows us to act in that way? That's the challenge. So there are three pointers. The works are to be seen because the church is the window through which people see the gospel. You do it in as much as you did it for any of these, Jesus says, you did it for me. And then thirdly, have the answer. So I would suggest that if we think of those questions, we may come up with a different view of ministry. Rather than having choir rehearsal seven days a week, we may actually have a bit more practice out there. We may be supporting people who are doing that we may actually be more willing individually and corporately to speak out. Above all else, we will be motivated by compassion. We won't be doing things so that the gospel gets out there. We will be doing things because there's a need, because we care, and because if we're doing it, we're doing it because that is Jesus, and we're doing it with his love. And compassion is something that really makes salt and light different. It'll be consistent We're very good in the church of picking things that are wrong, usually outside the church, but maybe not quite so good at addressing issues within the church. So we're pretty good on incest. I think there's probably not much debate about that one in here tonight. But actually, swindling, greed, career ambition, the next holiday, a bigger car, whatever, is that something we challenge our comfortable middle-class existence that so many enjoy. So we actually have to be consistent. And we have to be where the need is. That might be in St Andrews. It might be anywhere else in the world. It might be anywhere in between. But we have to be available. We have to be willing. So that was six questions. The challenge is, can we answer one or more of those questions to our own individual satisfaction? And will it make a difference? There is no doubt that being salt and light will make a difference. The question is, what difference will it make? That will depend on our adherence to this higher standard, this absolute belief that we're doing this not because it's the right thing to do. We're doing it because of what Jesus did for us. We're doing it for Jesus, to Jesus, as we reach out with compassion 
and consistency, showing that the church is the window through which people see the gospel of salvation. Thank you. Do you want some questions? It's already at the front. Is there a microphone there, Nope. Hello? Thank you very much indeed, David. So, just for about 15 minutes, and then we'll break and have tea and coffee. Opportunity to come back to David. Who would like to begin? So much better with chalk. <laughs> Just to prime the There's pump. One. Oh, there is a priming of the pump. I was curious about your, your statement just towards the end. You said something, and I hope I'm quoting it correctly. You said um, that we would, we would do things because there was a need, not so much because there was a need to get the word, the gospel, out there. And I was just wondering how that meshes with the whatsoever you do in my name. Um, and I'm just wondering where, where the in my name fits into the, the social responsibility that we have. So that's good. So I do want to be provocative on that because I've, I've been in churches and Christian groups saying, we'll do this because this is a good way to get the gospel into people's faces. In fact, I used to be involved with a, a, a hospital in the Middle East, and I used to go out a lot. And there's a huge pressure to preach in the wards because you would have Muslims there, and you could preach, and they couldn't go anywhere because they were in their beds. And somebody said, well, which do you think will make a bigger difference, somebody preaching or a cockroach walking across the floor? And the thing everybody's going to look at is the cockroach. And that says something about why we're doing it. If that hospital was clean and free of pests, people would be able to see and hear the word. So I'm not in any way saying it's not in Jesus' name. What I'm saying, the motivation is not to get our will, our message out there. It's our desire to adhere to that higher standard in Jesus' name to go and minister because there's need. So the focus is on meeting the need of individuals, not getting our message into their face but it has to be done in Jesus' name. Angus. Right. Uh, David, you used a phrase on a number of occasions there. You talked about the church being the window. Um, and the word church has a huge variety of different meanings. Could you perhaps uh, explain that phrase a little bit more about... What do you mean by the church being a window? Okay. The danger of a metaphor is it's always wrong. Uh, what I mean is people will say there's a church. People know there's St. Andrew's Baptist Church when they walk past. They have in their mind what that is. They think it's a building with a, a lot of strange people who come together once, maybe twice on a Sunday. But what they don't see, partly because we're upstairs, is what we do. They don't know what makes us tick. They think this is our club because we're in that secular age where we simply have one alternative amongst many. But the problem is they judge Christianity on the basis of what they think we are and what they think we do. And I would like to think that they're wrong and it's inaccurate. But if we have not got an alternative view or an alternative presentation, people are going to look at us and that might be the only time they confront the gospel. That might be the only time they ever think, hmm, I wonder who Jesus is. So my point is that people see us when we come together and gather, and they will judge on the basis of what they see what they think it is we represent. And therefore, how we portray ourselves, what we do, what we're seen to do, is actually going to make a huge difference potentially 
on how people see or understand the gospel. You're not saying it's what we do when we come together on a Sunday morning. Not at all. It's throughout the whole week. Absolutely. Let, you, let your good works be seen. So if that's involvement with, with meeting international students and encourage them or being involved in families first and befriending youngsters, anything like that counts. And as a church, we're perhaps not terribly good at gathering that and actually celebrating that involved. This building is phenomenally used in the community. And that's a tremendous witness. And it's only a building. So I think it's actually a question of anything that's being done, we have to celebrate in a way so that when people, not that it's in their face, but so when people come into contact with us and they say, well, I want to come on a Tuesday, you say, well, you can't come then because the hall's being used by so-and-so on Wednesday, it's them. And by the way, that's somebody from our church, they're involved in that programme. So it's not about the single gathering of the church, it's about the individuals, individually and together, being involved, just seeping out into society, into the community, to make a difference and supporting one another and actually seeing that as our spiritual work, our spiritual act of worship. Because currently, we tend to think of the things coming together as a spiritual bit and the things going out as what you do for service. Actually, if we turn that around the other way, say that is our spiritual act of worship, is to go out and make that difference. Thank you. Um, really just a, an added comment, uh, which I think goes with some of the things that David's been saying with us tonight. Uh, just a radio broadcast I happened to hear just a few days ago, where uh, somebody was talking to a community worker who was a thoroughgoing Marxist in this, uh, working as a social worker in this very deprived community. And he was saying, that uh, he didn't accept what uh, the Christians in the neighborhood believed and what they preached, but he knew perfectly well that if they stopped doing the things that they were doing in the community, the community would fall apart, which I think sort of backs up what David's been saying. that David um, just going back to your very first question about entitlement um, I think I agree fully with that and I think that's a really important issue but if we were to substitute the word heritage rather than entitlement there is a Christian heritage isn't there that we must never be ungrateful for I mean Rowan Williams talks about lost icons in our society and you just see in family life in all sorts of areas that where that Christian heritage has gone there is so much pain and so much confusion and people gave their lives to, to allow us to have a Christian heritage so though I agree about the entitlement there is a sadness about a loss of heritage I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm being very guarded, and of course I'm coming from a position of assumption to challenge it. But a lot of that Christian heritage, when we think about it, is a very established, ordered, hierarchical, rigid structure, much of which I despise, to be honest, because I don't think it was Christian. What it allowed was a society where belief is accepted for people to fit into that society believing. The real Christian heritage, which is within that, is the exceptional people, it's the Wesleys and the Whitfields and the Shaftesbury's, who stood up and said, in the name of Christ, I can make a difference. And I think the heritage is the freedom, or the relative freedom there was, to stand up and make that difference. So I am slightly, I agree there's a Christian heritage, and I don't want to be completely negative because that's wrong, but actually I think quite a lot of we call our Christian heritage is actually a social order based on Episcopalian or Anglican 
uh, oversight, if you will, of society. So I have concerns to put too much weight on Christian heritage. The Christian heritage, I think there has been, has been that acceptance of belief, and that's different, say, for example, than it is in France, post-revolution. That (coughs) willingness for scripture to be made freely available is hugely important, and that was one of great cause by people like Wycliffe and Tyndall. That's a huge part of our heritage, but a lot of the structures that have gone with that, I'm quite uncomfortable with. You know, there was an Irish potato famine, it was before my time, and Queen Victoria gave money, but she gave money because she was embarrassed because the Sultan, the Emperor of the Ottoman Empire, gave first. And that says something about the heritage that we have. It was very much based in this relationship of church and state. That's the bit I'm uncomfortable with. But the freedom, the availability of God's word... Absolutely, that's a heritage to be prized and to be precious. And so many of our laws and cultural things that we accept have been placed there by Christians making a difference, being salt and light. But actually, I think they've often appeared from within rather than that being a natural outcome of our heritage. Okay, one final question, Hannah. So you said... Um, the, the church is a window and we're to not accept um, incest and greed and swindlers in, in the church so what are we to do with sin in the church then um, like Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and had them as his followers um, so we all sin there is sin in the church family. So how does not accepting that and not being tolerant of that fit in with the idea of let him without sin through the first stone? It's a very good question, and if we had another R. Uh, but even that passage is interesting because it says, talking about this young man who's been sleeping with his father's wife, it says, cast him out, cast him over to Satan. Why? that his soul might be saved. So I think there's got to be this intolerance of sin. It starts with me personally, not me pointing the finger at something else or someone else. It's an intolerance of complacency. It's the thought, it's not just we pick our favourite sins because of the ones I'm not guilty of, and, and the other ones we can kind of ignore because everyone's a bit materialistic, let's not worry about that. So it's an intolerance of complacency, but the whole point is in compassion that we change. So even in that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, the young man is to be, his, be cast out for Satan to have his flesh that his soul may be saved. There's still that compassion, that desire for salvation, that desire for restoration. So I think that's the key. It's not to point the finger in a negative way. It's to have compassion for the individual, an absolute rejection of complacency, and to say, as a group, we want to encourage one another. And then, as we showed in that cartoon, it's actually dealing with our own plank and our own eye first. So it's not witch hunts within the church, and that's happened. It's not that. It's actually about we do not want, as a group, to accept complacency about what we are and what we do. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, David. Let's express our appreciation to David.